One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Dead Rock Stars with Mick Wall and Joel McIver. Welcome everyone, and here we go again for another fantastic, fun-packed episode of Dead Rockstars. Before we crack on, a quick shout-out to our pals at Metal Hammer. Thanks so much to those guys for hosting our Ronnie James Dio episode of Dead Rockstars. Make sure you check out Hammer's weekly podcast that's available at all the usual places with our compliments. Mick and I have been writing for them for many, many years. No, I don't write for them anymore. They won't have me. Fuck you guys! If you tuned into our phenomenal but terrifyingly intellectual analysis of the great Lou Reed, you may be in for a surprise today because we are talking about some rather different people. And those people are departed rock stars very, very close to our heart. The first one, Daryl Lance Abbott, better known by his nickname Dimebag, departed this mortal coil in 2004. And his older brother, Vinnie Paul, who sadly died at the end of June. My dear friend Mick Wall, he's here. Uh, you met these chaps, I believe, at an earlier, relatively early stage in their career. Well, I interviewed, not really in a meaningful sense, mm. but I interviewed Phil Anselmo and Dimebag together for a radio show around the time of vulgar display of power. But I did a, a better interview, because radio interviews are very, you know, tell me about your album. Yeah. You know. Vinnie Paul, I spoke to at great length not so long ago, and we were talking specifically about Dimebag yeah. and about those years they were together in Pantera. Yeah. And, of course, their childhood and after Pantera. So I can't pretend that I knew them in the same way, perhaps, as a Ronnie Dio or a Lemmy. Yeah. Yeah. But certainly I was a big fan of Pantera. Right. Um, although there are many Panteras, if, oh, if we're going to be... Let's get into that. Into it. Yeah, I mean, for me, like yeah. most people, I guess, Pantera began with Cowboys from Hell. Yeah. But you're going to obviously elucidate on that and explain how that isn't really the case. Well, you know, that was their fifth album, right? But it depends on your point of view. What had happened was that Pantera basically kids out of of Arlington, Texas, had self-released four albums on their own Metal Magic label. The stuff was essentially what we would call glam rock now. They have this piss-taking nickname of Glam Terror from this uh, part of their career. Pure 80s cheese, big bouffant haircuts, ridiculous, not very good music. Incredible musicians, but we'll come to that shortly. But can I just interject? This was the era of bands like Rat. Yes. 
Poison, Cinderella. Well, see, for me, Poison and Cinderella had a modicum of talent. Modicum. Where someone like Rat, God bless them, apart from Warren Martini, who was very talented, you know, I think that was really all image with them. Right. You know, yeah. they were fabulous on stage and they had Round and Round, which was a great track. But to me, they epitomised that, what we now call glam metal. Mm. Lots of image, lots of makeup. But when it came down to actual substance... Yeah. Yeah, but it seemed to be that was the only way you could make it in American rock in those days. I mean, right. even Ozzy got the big hair and the makeup. Yeah, or as he used to put it, I looked like a fat Joan Collins. You know, <laughs> when she was in Dynasty. From, I mean, yeah. you inhabited that glam era. I as did. A professional, did I you d- not? As a, you know. as a so-called professional, and I did have hair, but I didn't have makeup, and I certainly didn't walk around like a ponce in glammy clothes. That came later. That came much later with the high heels and the hidden sexual innuendo. For me, the high point of any kind of glam metal, whatever you call it, the poodle head bollocks, was pretty much Guns N' Roses on that first album when they looked like that. You see, here I'm going to disagree yeah, with you. Because it is an interesting point of contention. It, it is, because glam metal had existed long before Guns N' Roses. Mm-hmm. I first saw Rat opening for Billy Squire at some Enormo Dome in Chicago yeah. in 1984. 84. And at that point, Squire was a huge arena-filling star at the point, and Rat blew him off stage every night, and that was Rat's big coming-out year. Yeah, But... Actually, Rat were Motley Crue light. Wow. And Motley Crue had had their big breakthrough year in 1983. Mm-hmm. If we you got go... uh, Feel Good? No, wait, the other one. No. What, what, what is wrong about? with you? Anyone would think I was only 12 at the time. Talk... Dr. Feelgood was practically the end. No, no, shout at the devil. Shout at the devil, that one, yeah. Do you know, I once go asked to... Nicky Six if Too Fast for Love was a euphemism for premature ejaculation. And he said... <laughs> he said, <laughs> I ain't never heard that one before. Um, so in 1983, if you go to YouTube and look at a clip of Motley Crue at the Us Festival, mm-hmm. where they were opening, that was their big breakthrough year. The year they signed to Electra, the year they had their first big chart album, and the year when Motley Crue looked like Motley Crue with Nicky with the adamant stripes That's on his it. face yeah, and yeah, an yeah, enormous yeah. hair. and Well, Rat copped that a year later... And a year after Rat, everybody... I mean, even Queensryche looked like Rat yeah. in 85. Kiss actually went through a glam thing, didn't they, in the 80s? Teased up the hair. Yeah, although I th- Kiss no. is a weird example, because, I mean, mm. think back, my friend, to mm. Kiss's action figures in the 70s. <laughs> I kind of... Maybe Motley came after Kiss? Yeah, a little bit. Are you saying Motley-inspired Kiss? No, of course not. I'm just saying that Kiss... How even, much even coffee have kiss. you had? Coffee and pork pies. Even the mighty it's kiss. It's the downfall of podcast uh, presenters. We've just been eating pork pies. Mick is right, and I'm wrong about Kiss. He's right. Uh, about and, that and anyway, what's this got to do with Dimebag Daryl? So all this, all this <laughs> waffle basically uh, is the context into which those first Pantera albums fit. So you're, me, saying, you're saying they were glam, glam metal? Yeah, they were glam. And for the final one, which was called uh, Power Metal, that was when the singer Phil Anselmo joined, replacing a guy called Terry Glaze, who'd done vocals on the previous record. Did Phil yeah. have the big... Oh, he did, yeah, he the had big the full hair. hair. It's hilarious. Yeah, did he wear makeup? I don't know about that, but for sure he had the massive great poodle hair. Wow. Uh, on Power Metal, their fourth album, which I, uh, probably came out in 89, 88. These records, interestingly, are only still available on vinyl. They've never been reissued. Funny that. In any format. It's weird because Pantera asked, got so massive, you would think there'd be an interest in their earlier stuff. Anyway, you can tell I used to work on Record Collector magazine. That's where that came from. Anyway, look. Can yeah. you get them on Spotify? 
Uh, no, you can't get them anywhere. I think they've been put on YouTube by people who've recorded them, put the audio on there. Excellent. I love Ill- YouTube for that. Yeah, it's great. The artist goes, let's bury this. And someone goes, look at this. Yeah, weirdly. They tried to bury it. But it is a mark of the affection for the band we're talking about that people want to hear that stuff, which I yeah. think is pretty crap for myself. I, I couldn't mm. ever get into it, really. Well, I don't know if they want to hear it so much yeah. as look at it and take the piss. Well, that's what we do. Yeah, that's, I, don't think, I don't think it's that, that they want to listen to it, Joel. <laughs> no, I know. I don't want to listen to it. I just oh, want to look mate, at it. I don't know. Do you go down to Texas, though, a lot of people who still dress that way they look that way they live like their idols 86 never ended for them yeah the equivalent over here would be the people that appear on jeremy kyle oh that's very classist i am very classist i call a twat a twat what's wrong with being classy uh, anyway, so Pantera came out of... Uh, classy's got to do with classy. <laughs> Who's got glasses? Pantera, rejoined by Phil Anselmo. Anyway, this sort of guy was much more aggressive kind of stage present than his predecessor. With a punk background, you're dying to say something, aren't you? I can no, see no, not at all. Edging not towards all. the mic. Anyway, no, no, look, not at all. And no. uh, they were signed by Atco, which was part of Atlantic, mm. because famously, there's always a famous you know, anecdote, right? Apparently what happened was that they had tried and failed to gain the attention of the record, of the mainstream record labels many, many times over been turned down always turned down until a bloke called Mark Ross who was an executive for Atco found himself and if I've got the details of this story wrong alright okay which would slight, not, slightly fucking frankly, wrong frankly you know but true I'm to form. pretty sure that the gist of it is correct he found himself stranded down there in Texas because of the bad weather so he went and saw this gig saw Pantera the Pantera with Phelan Salmo on vocals was suitably impressed recommended them to his boss at Atco and the deal was signed and then in 1990 you had the first album Cowboys from Hell so was it their first album no it clearly wasn't I'll never forget that opening it's a brilliant opening I love that opening track is that the title track yeah it's yeah Cowboys from Hell song it's interesting you ask Pantera now about that first record and they'll say well it was a sort of bridging point between the much heavier stuff which followed and the kind of really crappy stuff that had preceded it. It's I found it very heavy at the time. Well, I mean, it, I mean, the standards of the day. Yeah, the standards of the day. Yeah. <laughs> what <laughs> year was it? 1990? 1990. I'm just smoothing my moustache. 1990. It wasn't very heavy. Yeah. Dead rock stars lobbing light grenades into the gloom. I would welcome your input on this, okay? Oh, yeah. Because I was a mere youth at the time, but you yes. were a professional in the industry. Oh. Basically, in 1991 and 1992... Metallica reigned supreme over the heavy metal scene. Mm. Okay, Iron Maiden mm. were going through some tough times. Mm. God, I don't know. Judas Priest half. Well, once in the you get to ninety one, ninety two, you're yeah. talking Nirvana and grunge. Right. So, so everybody was yeah. either being killed off or reinventing themselves. As I understand it, nineteen ninety one, the summer of nineteen ninety one was year zero in a sense because you had Metallica's Black Album. You had Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Red Hot Chili Peppers, which completely took over. And then you had Nevermind by Nirvana. So in 92, you had this sort of sea change, right, as I mm. see it. And again, it's, mm. I was a callow youth, you were in the industry. It may have been different the way you, you saw it, I don't know. But now Pantera came into the picture around this time, and specifically with Cowboys from Hell in 1990, and then a much superior album, Vulgar Display of Power, mm. in 1992. And... As I remember from being a heavy metal kid, I was like 20, 21 at the time, student actually listening to this stuff, they had this incredible groove and this amazing sort of uh, melodic awareness, but they were heavy as fuck. Okay, it wasn't Slayer, although there were elements of thrash metal in certain songs. It wasn't, you know, a death metal thing like Morbid Angel or whatever, although you did have incredibly heavy vocals from Phil Anselmo. So in a way, and I'm leading up to a question for you, as I perceived it, Pantera had this thing where they sort of covered all the metal bases or many of the metal bases while still being on MTV and still being on the radio. That was what made them so popular, I think. You know, they had this crazy image. 
They were amazing musicians. The songs were very, very catchy and hummable in parts. At the same time, on the rest of the album, you had some crazy, crazy heavy stuff, proper, proper fast metal. And people reacted, you know, and the grunge kids liked it too. They seemed to, to cross a large number of bases, and that was how I perceived it as a callow ute. Well, I think that's absolutely right. No, you're supposed to disagree with me at this point. No, no, I agree with you. I think, um, I think there was a fundamental sea change that became very apparent in 92. It had begun yeah. long before that. I mean, the, it had begun really in the late 80s with the arrival of groups like King's X and Faith No More and Masters of Reality. Chili Peppers. Well, the Chili Peppers were already around. Yeah, Living Colour, maybe? Living Colour, definitely. Burning Tree. There were lots of rock bands that fitted very easily onto the pages of Kerrang! Yeah. magazines like that. Yeah but that plainly didn't come from exactly the same place as an Iron Maiden or a Metallica or whoever. And Pantera, although they tried so hard to fit in in the 80s with their kind of glam metal, you know, kind of looking at what's happening in the charts, okay, we need to dress like that and be like that. By the time they become big with Cowboys from Hell, I think they are a completely different proposition. Yeah. And I think uh, what you said about groove... I mean, that's what they called it, wasn't it? Groove metal. They had this southern thing going on. They had this southern thing. That that southern thing was precisely the part of their musical ID that I think made them so attractive. Mm. They had a fantastic image. They clearly weren't Megadeth or Guns N' Roses. They were something much more contemporary. They weren't grunge. They were super heavy. But in Anselmo, you yeah. know, they've got an extraordinary front man. Yeah. You've got to have an extraordinary front man, exploding with energy, very uh, volatile, very challenging. Yeah. But also, you know, super cool. I mean, the girls found him very alluring as yeah. well. But in Dimebag, you've also got that hardcore offering, which is the uber cool mm. guitarist. Not only could he play brilliant shredding and great solos, he had this incredible groove. Yeah. And when I interviewed his brother Vinny, who was obviously the drummer, we talked about Dimebag's influences. Yeah. And, in fact, I've got a little list of them here. Vinny made me a list of songs he called Dimebag Radio. <laughs> I'm going to bet that Van Halen is on there somewhere. Number one Eddie track was Eruption by Van Halen. Oh, fantastic. And Vinny told me, uh, this is a quote from Vinny saying, that Dimebag could play it note for note. Yeah. He just really loved that track. As a kid. He was also super influenced, according to Vinny, by Randy Rhodes, Diary of a Madman. Mm. That was another one Dimebag used to play, especially the intro, according to Vinny. He loved King's X. He also loved Iron Maiden. He loved Number of the Beast. Uh, He was a huge fan of Dave Murray and Adrian Smith and how that twin guitar wove together. Mm. He loved ZZ Top. Big Billy Gibbons fan. And I think now we're getting into the groove metal. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Loved ACDC, the Bon Scott era yeah. of ACDC. Yeah. And like a lot of kids of his generation, adored Kiss. Yeah. Ace Frehley was his big hero, I think. Ace Frehley was uh, yeah. his huge hero. He used to love Rocket Ride, yeah. uh, which Ace co-wrote. He had Ace's uh, face tattooed on his chest. That's right. Um, <laughs> and he also, interestingly, really liked Metallica, but specifically James Hetfield's Rhythm play. Oh, his picking hand, yeah, which we talked about before. Which we talked about before, yeah, yeah. but which Dimebag absolutely thought was the gold standard at that point. Yeah. And you can hear all those things in his sound, but particularly that pulsing groove. Yeah. Yeah. 
enabled by the rest of the band, right? Now, yeah. uh, one of the, the bass player was called Rex Brown, jazz trained guy, incredible bass player. Not that he was required to produce jazzy sort of bass playing in Pantera, but he understood very much so. And he had a kind of Hetfield style picking hand in that he had to play a, a sort of unison part with Dimebag that was m- like absolutely millimetrically perfect had to be so they had this sound which was very sort of groovy and cut off and staccato which was catchy as hell they had this song called walk which oh that was from <laughs> vulgar display that's the big kind, anthem, that's their it? stairway to heaven i think there's so. smoke on the water yeah, yeah and it's so simple they're it's master the ba- of puppets banana it's amazing yeah but the power you know. and groove of that. yeah and the restraint and the economy and all that it just walks forward no joke intended sort of walks forward beautifully it's not extravagant, actually. It's an example of incredible power restrained. And they were given an amazing production by a guy called Terry Date as well, which really, really helped gain right. the contemporary edge. So what interests me is that when you and I look back at the 1990s and we are told, and I guess there's some truth to this, metal had a difficult time in the 90s unless you were Metallica. Mm. And if you're talking about thrash metal, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, the big four of thrash diversified their sounds or, or diminished, you know. Basically. I think Megadeth, by 92, I mean, they were going from well, strength to strength. Yeah, they'd done Countdown to Extinction, yeah, which was their biggest great record. Album. Yeah, yeah. Um, But then they kind of went into euthanasia and sort of softened up their sound. Yep. Anthrax also diversified. Only Slayer stuck to the thrash thing, although they deviated a bit from time to time, notably with a punk covers album and a sort of new metal thing in 1998. But metal itself, I think people listening to grunge, frankly, people like those dark emotional textures which made the sort of the vivid technicolor aspect of all the metal that come before look a bit silly frankly now what's great is that pantera had all that stuff there are some deep dark textures in pantera songs it wasn't all about the happy stupid let's get pissed side and now that is a huge part of pantera's appeal they put out i think three home videos didn't they and collected them all on a dvd later on vulgar videos from hell and we've all seen many a backstage scene of debauchery but this they collected these really really well there was a lot of stupidity that made you crack up, like they would throw fireworks at each other in a tiny space, you know. They would drink like madmen, of course, smoke a lot of weed, generally take the piss out of people, get up to all sorts of trouble on the road, and that was incredibly attractive viewing and seductive. Well, they were from Texas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. These aren't whingy Seattle Greenwich Village. boys ex- <laughs> you know, examining yeah, yeah. the dark reaches of their souls. Yeah. Now, this wasn't Lou Reed mincing around with blokes pooing in his mouth, you know. Good Lord. These were Texans. <laughs> Guns must have been there I think as guns well. Guns featured. Guns featured, featured heavily. Yeah, yeah. yeah. along yeah. with all sorts of you know, are they um, didn't fill in somewhere have a giant snake or something? Well, I don't, my dear, well, hey, I, hey, well done. I, 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 excuse me. You know, I mm. could only imagine. So, uh, I'd rather not. Although but, uh, apparently everyone was listening to grunge or Metallica in the 1990s. There you had Pantera, and after Vulgar Display of Power in 1992, which was an incredible record, the uh, front cover has someone getting punched in the face which mm. I thought was quite amusing. Yeah. Um, and when they went on to do uh, Far Beyond Driven in 1994, we debuted at number one in the charts. Now, mm. take that on board for a mm. minute, right? In 1994, when Corn were about to come out, uh, we're only a few years away from Slipknot, Limp Biscuit, right? It debuted at number one, and that had uh, a skull on the front cover with a, with a drill going into its forehead. And uh, Vinnie Paul told me that initially the um, original design, interestingly enough, your mention of Lou Reed comes to mind here, the original design was the uh, drill going into someone's anus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> difficult to depict in a comforting way, I think, uh, visually. That idea was scrapped, and I imagine the album would not have gone to number one <laughs> had that been the case. But Far Beyond Driven was another amazing album too, and I'm not just skipping over the 1990s as if all these but, albums. But are the before same, we go not, you know. two down the yeah. musical rabbit, rabbit hole, hole. Yeah. I mean, did you know Dimebag? I interviewed him a couple of times. And Notably, what was he like? Right, so 
This is jumping way ahead. Were you and him about the same age? He's the, no, he's about 10 years older than me. Oh. In uh, 2004, okay, so it's fairly late on in their career. I didn't get to meet him till then. He'd been to that year's Golden Gods Award, which was Metal Hammer's awards ceremony, right? And uh, he had behaved a little bit obnoxiously, apparently. He was so pissed that I, I, I can't remember. I think, I think things got broken. Probably people got insulted, you know. To the ex- I to, hope so. Yeah, yeah well, you would I hope, I mean, it's right? the Metal Hammer party. Totally right, yeah, yeah. And uh, to the effect that he took it upon himself to write a letter of apology to Metal Hammer the following uh, month, which they printed as the letter of the month. Dimebag saying, yeah, I'm sorry, man, I kind of fucked up there, uh, or whatever words to that effect. Anyway, I met him the day after this, and I have never seen a man so hungover. This was not just a headache. This was a biblical level of hangover, right? The guy was sitting there, eyes going in all different directions. Like a fly <laughs> flew past him really slowly at one point and he did a massive sort of swipe to try and get it missed completely. It was like, oh, fucking fly! <laughs> sitting there trying to drink water, handshaking, just fucked. But at the same time, incredibly nice and smiley and friendly, right? Couldn't do enough fist bumping and hey, buddy, and hey, man, hey, bro. I was interviewing him for Total Guitar and they said, uh, right, slightly interesting brief here. The editor at the time was Scott Rowley, who you know from uh, from Classic Rock. And um, they had attempted to do a photo shoot with Dimebag just a couple of days before when he was in his cups. And he picked up the guitar, which was a, uh, an Explorer, which is a kind of a spiky-shaped guitar of the type that he favoured, smashed it against the wall, and uh, it was in pretty poor shape. And the brief from my interview with this hangover was to say, oh, here's this guitar that you smashed up, tell us about it. And he sort of saw it, and I said... <laughs> Because this guitar was fucked, right? It had a giant, like, dent in the back of the neck. Everything was falling off. And I said, did you do this? And he said, ah, that was me, man. I guess that was me, boy. Ha-ha. And sort of laughing in this mad way. And uh, he calmed down and we did the interview. And it was great. And he went quite deep. He talked about the pressures of fame. You know, he said that for some reason, whenever he was trying to have a piss in a urinal, someone would try and come up and shake his hand. <laughs> he said that was always what happened. He said, Can you just hold on a second, buddy. I've got to finish this here. He was only 38 and uh, six when months... Di- when he, when when he, he died, died, yeah. Right? And, and um, so I had a great time. Lovely, lovely bloke. I thought he was wonderful. When you meet people who famously drink as much as that, the big thing is about booze, 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 isn't it? You know, at some point, you know they're going to have to stop. And my view is that sooner or later he would have had to stop. His drinking buddy was Zach Wilde, right, of Ozzy Osbourne's band. Also a huge boozer at the time. Also quit the booze a couple of days later. So a couple of years later, sorry. So the lifestyle that Pantera portrayed, they lived. You know, they really did it. Felanselmo overdosed of heroin and died briefly. was brought back, right? I don't know when that was. I want to say something like 1998, but I could be wrong. We need to check. They really did go deeply into the rabbit hole of, of rock and roll and emerged, I think would have emerged actually, healthy. But what happened to Dimebag? We know what happened to Dimebag. Well, you say we know what happened. I mean, um, I I, uh, I must apologise for my earlier flippant remark about guns. There's no room for flippancy here, Mick. No, not well, not in this particular story, but I wasn't <laughs> no, trying I to reference his death. No, no, I know that, Mick. I was just thinking of my own experience of Texans in Texas and particularly boisterous, rowdy guys that, <laughs> that like to have fun. So that's all I meant. You're absolutely but, right. I was but, but when yeah. we talk mm-hmm. about his death, I mean, talk me through it, because although I interviewed Vinny, yeah. because I was sensitive to the fact that, you know, this tragedy had occurred, I didn't want to drag him through every detail again. No, but but what's your understanding of what actually happened? Where did it happen? How did it happen? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Dead Rock Stars podcast. Very quick run up to this event. Pantera remained successful all the way through the 1990s. They essentially stopped talking to each other in about 2001. They were going to do a UK tour. 9-11 stopped them travelling. They were stuck in Dublin just after 9-11, right? That's essentially where the relationship broke down. There had been some friction between Phil Anselmo and the Abbott brothers, right, with Rex Brown sort of on the side, not really getting involved. The Abbott brothers obviously being Dimebag and Vinny. And Vinny. And what had happened then was that Phil Anselmo had essentially withdrawn from the band. He hadn't sort of formally done anything. He'd just gone off and done his other project, which was Down, itself a really good band, right? Yeah, I like Down. Yeah, yeah. In response, the Abbott brothers went off and formed Van Core Damage Plan, uh, which released a record called New Found Power, which was okay. I didn't think it was fantastic. I thought it was just all right. It was a nice little showcase for their skills. You know, the Pantera fan base were loyal. They did a couple of tours that people enjoyed. And then on uh, December the 8th, 2004... They were playing in Columbus, Ohio, in a venue called the Al Rosa Villa. And um, I think a couple of songs into that. Damage. Damage plan. I should make that clear, yeah. And what happened was that a bloke called Nathan Gale, amazing, you know, he never would have got famous for anything other than this. He uh, scaled the fence, got past security, and for reasons best known to himself, and they are really only best known to himself because he didn't really share them publicly, took it upon himself to murder Dimebag, you know, uh, as well as three other people. Well, tell us what happened when you say he murdered them. What happened? He took a gun on stage, shot Dimebag in the head a couple of times, killed him instantly, shot a couple of other people who attempted to intervene, and then grabbed someone hostage and was going to try and leave with the hostage, but was killed himself by an off-duty police officer who happened to be there with a shotgun. So that was the end of Nathan Gale. And it was the end of Dimebag. And Vinnie Paul witnessed all this right in front of him. Wow. Unbelievable. Now, I remember I was at work the next day and I got a phone call about this because I had interviewed Phil Anselmo not long before. And Phil had made some inflammatory comments about Dimebag. They had essentially fallen out. Was What did he say? Let me phrase this carefully. I had interviewed Phil Anselmo for Metal Hammer. Phil had said words to the effect of that Dimebag deserves to be beaten severely. That was the phrase that was used. Now, when Dimebag was killed, this wasn't long after the magazine had come out. I got a phone call from Metal Hammer saying, we need to check the contents of your recording to make sure that what you said in the magazine article was what Phil Anselmo actually said. That's what they did. They got the recording, which was on a cassette. They digitised it, turned it into an MP3, sent it to me, sent it to the police in Columbus, Ohio. 
sent it to Vinnie Paul and sent it to Phil Anselmo. It was all ascertained that what Phil had said in the future was actually what had been written. He'd actually said it verbatim because I'd been very careful to transcribe it verbatim. And that was what happened. And, you know, uh, I think Phil initially denied doing the interview. It was subsequently proven to him that he had done. And that was the end of the affair. So does anybody have uh, why he did this? It is thought, and I can't quite remember the details, it is thought that he was suffering from some sort of delusion. Possibly he was uh, a psychotic. He believed that something strange had happened. I can't remember the exact details, but either Pantera had stolen something from him or he'd written some lyrics for Pantera. He was completely psychotic, absolutely not living in the world of reality. And he took it upon himself to go and murder Dimebag. And, you know, the short-term effect was massive shock throughout the metal community. The long-term effect was that security was beefed up in uh, metal gigs, you know, around the world for quite some time. I'm telling you, man, it was a... It was a hell of a shock. It was a terrifying thing to happen that somehow this bloke, a big guy, I have a feeling he was an ex-Marine, I'm not entirely sure, was able to walk into a venue like that through security with a weapon and commit murder. Unbelievable. All these years later. So that was the end of Dimebag, you know. A kind of a fun-loving, sort of Yosemite Sam-alike, amusing figure of fun, but amazing guy as well, an incredible musician. And his life was just taken just like that. Now, we've talked in this podcast about people who died of drugs or they died of misadventure or they choked on their own vomit because they were drunk I don't think we've talked about anyone who was murdered mm. and Dimebag was only 38 you know it's a terrible thing do you think if he hadn't died because I think they probably would have done Pantera would have got back together I think probably in the end yeah I the mean, money, Guns the money and Roses can get back together yeah even if it had taken 20 years you know the money is generally really really good in these things I did a book with uh, Max Cavalera of Sepultura a few years ago and he is constantly sorry of Soulfly now previously of Sepultura he's constantly being asked if Sepultura will ever reform and he doesn't really know I think he's sick of being asked about it but in the end I imagine if the money was fantastically huge as it would be they might well consider it you know both sides of the band who themselves have been split up for years we've seen this happen you just mentioned Guns N' Roses the ultimate example of a band that gets back together mm. You know, Faith No More did it, Journey did it, you know, all these bands that come and go. Vinnie Paul. Yeah. Did you know Vinnie Paul? Well, I met him a couple of times. Spent a lot of time talking to him in interviews for Metal Hammer and drum magazines and so on. I wouldn't say he was his Before name. Dimebag died? Oh, before and after. And what was it like uh, after Dimebag died compared to what it was like before? Was there a difference? Uh, well, I didn't broached the subject necessarily of Dimebag being murdered that way as part of my interview. No. I did ask a question which uh, had become almost uh, expected. So I'll answer your question in two ways. The first aspect of interviewing Vinnie Paul, whether before or after his brother had died, was that he was another fun-loving Texan, you know what I mean? Who just believed in, in making metal and having a good time. And it sounds cheesy and a bit simple, but it's kind of true, you know. There wasn't well, I, much I keep more coming back to they, they were Texans. I mean, Texans, you know, it sounds such a cliche, yeah. but it's true. You know, these are big people that live in the big country. Yeah. And they live large. They do. I was there a couple of years ago staying with some friends near Austin, and um, the scale of everything is bigger. You know, this mate of mine had a seven litre Jeep. Of course, why not? Because and, and actually, there's a reason for that, which is that if you go into a drive through Texas, it might be another 200 miles to a petrol station. So right. there's some logic right. to that. But actually, there's more to it than that. You know, yeah. No, he just wants a seven litre you know, Jeep. Petrol costs nothing. Everything's yeah. cheap. You know, relatively speaking, there's a whole uh, independence thing about Texas as well, because it wasn't it the last state to join mm. the union or something like that. Mm. You know, and it's massive as well. It's pretty much its own country and its own economy, like California. So yes, there is a whole Texan thing. 
as distinct from, say, you know, North Carolinan thing, I imagine, you know. Or Seattle uh, on a rainy Tuesday. Right, precisely. Although that produced its own results, didn't it, in a very sort of meaningful yeah, way, right? A lot of dead people, which we'll get to, no we doubt, will, in the course, man. Of, course of this series. God, but, the body count has been high. But back to yeah. the question, oh, Vinny. was Vinny yeah. different after the death? Oh, perhaps a bit more guarded. You know, I mean, I, I can't quite imagine what that does to a person, seeing your own relative gunned down in front of you, let alone if you're in the public eye and being asked about it on a constant basis. And mm. um, What had happened later in his life was that people, I don't know who, a journalist said to Vinny, would you be up for reforming Pantera with Zach Wilde on guitar? Because Zach Wilde was a shredder of similar capacity to Dimebag and because they were friends. It was probably just a throwaway question, but for some reason, people latched onto this. And in pretty much every interview that was quoted subsequently, Vinny was asked this question, and I, cheesy as it may sound, also said this. Look, I said, I know it's a stupid question, but is, is there any traction to this, or is it just made up? And he said, no, it'll never happen. You know, Zach's a friend, but you can't replace Dimebag. We're not going to do it. And actually, he said it in quite graphic terms. He said, look, if Eddie Van Halen took three shots to the head, would you then say, oh, Zach Wilde can just step in and, and, and replace him? No, of yeah. course you wouldn't. Yeah. And you could see his point. You know, he never spoke to Phil Anselmo again. That's a, sort of a sad thing. There was a what, partly a, to do with the interview he'd given to you. I think he viewed well. It wasn't just to me. I mean, a lot of people did interviews with Phil Anselmo in which uncomplimentary things were said about the Abbott brothers. Oh man, what was the reality then? What was the problem? I mean, I, there's always between the singer and the guitarist yeah. lies a world of pain. But in this case, what's the deal? What was Anselmo's axe to grind? You know, I don't think he's ever really said. He drifted away from Pantera. In 2001, I think there was a personality clash between him and Dimebag. I don't know what it was, and he hasn't really said. Well, probably and, because it was their band. Well, I think there must be something to and do with that. And singers like to take control, don't yeah, they? Yeah, well, yeah, they, they do. He was also recovering from drug addiction. He was also deeply injured. He had this back injury, which might not sound like much, but he had severe back pain every day of his life. Listen, the severe back pain every day of your life is, no is serious. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Which I think probably made him less patient, less tolerant when it came to dealing with the other rest, you know, rest of the band in a small space. He had other projects he wanted to do. Oh, that's it, because he told me, he said that I thought Pantera had got as big as they were going to get when they toured in 2001, actually, with Slayer and Morbid Angel. They did this massive tour. Um, they did big old sheds. I mean, it was a proper, proper tour. From the Abbott's point of view, he sort of appeared to vanish and not answer their phone calls. And you could see how that would piss you off. Mm. Um, so while getting no info from him about what was going on with Pantera, they went off and formed Damage Plan. And I have a feeling that there was some sort of formal wind-up of Pantera in 2003. That's the date I've got uh, in my mind. So it's not that clear, really. That band just ran its course. Phil's gone on to do Down and Superjoin and a bunch of pretty decent projects, actually. Vinny, after Dimebag's death, or actually in 2006, he didn't sort of resurface for a year and a half or so, formed Hell Yeah, which was this sort of southern groovy metal band, uh, which had its sort of fan base. I wasn't particularly a big fan, but they toured and they were successful. And he also had a record label called Big Vin Records. He released um, a DVD called Dime Vision, which was footage of his brother. It's quite entertaining, actually. It's pretty funny. And then he, on the 20th of June, I believe we said, died in his sleep. Uh, reasons for which have yet to be revealed. Well, they're saying it was a a massive heart attack. Well, I think a source said that. It wasn't corroborated. I believe that was said. And he was 54. Now, that's not old, but, you know, uh, he was a big guy. Uh, We don't know what his lifestyle was. He did talk about drinking a lot. 
You know, he said he was a big drinker. Um, maybe it was just, you know, things that happen to guys in their mid-50s who don't look after themselves. You know, maybe, maybe it was as simple as that. I guess the saddest thing is for their father, Jerry, himself, a country musician who's had to bury both mm. of his sons. Mm. And, you know, their mother, I believe, died fairly young as well. So that's a sort of dynasty struck by short lives, really, you know. But neither in the classic rock and roll sense of the people we've talked about where they ingested tons of drugs and that was the end of them. You know, it wasn't like that. One of them was murdered in the most pointless, cruel circumstances, and the other one succumbed to what we assume is middle-aged man-itis, you know. And um, do we know, because, you know, you look at brothers in the Black Crows or brothers in Oasis or, you know, sibling rivalry can tear groups apart. Yeah. In the case of Dimebag and Vinny, to your knowledge, yeah. in Pantera and beyond, did they always get on? Was there ever famous stories of fights and things? No, between the opposite. Brothers? No, the opposite, mate. They were supposed to be incredibly tight, you know, really, really super, super close. There's a famous story, actually, about uh, Dave Mustaine of Megadeth inviting Dimebag to either to audition or to join Megadeth. I can't remember which it was. Dimebag said, no, OK, fine, but my brother Vinny needs to come along too. <laughs> Uh, you know, what they, a band that would have been. Uh, well, that's what Mustaine has subsequently said. He said, you know, what an incredible band that would have been. Him, David Ellison, Vinnie Paul and Dimebag Darrell. I'm not sure it would have worked with the personalities involved. Yeah. Because Dave Mustaine is very much a band leader. Right. And I don't know how much those guys would have taken direction. They did, after all, found and run Pantera themselves. It was their band. Yeah, it's a nice entertaining thought, isn't it? You know, everyone likes the idea of a super group. When I interviewed Vinnie, it was for a piece I was doing specifically about Dimebag. Yeah. So it wasn't one of those things where you're off to talk to him about something and maybe you'll get a few you know, bits and pieces on Dimebag as well. It was all about his brother. Yeah. And, um, you know, you don't know what to expect, really. Such a strange and bizarre circumstance. It's almost hard to approach an interview it, with, it, with someone it, who's been it, through that. It really is. I mean, at my enormous late age, there are lots of people I know that have died yeah. and people I've spoken to about friends of theirs in groups yeah. and relatives that have died. You know, the, the subject itself is is not taboo nor unusual. Mm. But as you say, to be gunned down on stage in front of you, a young man, this is definitely something different. And but Can you think of another example uh, in the, rock music? No, I, I can just think of John Lennon being gunned well, down. On the same date, December the 8th. Yeah, I know. I that, that's that. horribly bizarre. Just but incredible. But anyway, I, I, I spoke to Vinny at his house and... Um, was he a nice guy? Did you like he him? He was fantastic. Yeah, I think he was a really good bloke. Really easy to talk to. Yeah. Very happy to talk about Dimebag. I didn't talk to him about his death. We talked about his life. Mm. And uh, I was looking back at the piece in preparation for our conversation today and just reminding myself, and I'm so glad I did because it's a lovely piece. He's yeah. so warm. Yeah. He talks so brilliantly about his brother. It's yeah. not at all sentimental or syrupy. Mm. It's as if Dimebag is still around in the next room. And I don't mean that in a creepy sense no, either. I... What I mean is he just talks about yeah. Dimebag's life, yeah. how they got on, how they it was a bit like the Van Halen brothers, how they'd actually fought over who was going to play drums. <laughs> and that's how Daryl ended up playing guitar yeah. because yeah. his older brother got the drums yeah. first. Yeah. And talking about his influences and the stuff they were listening, he told one great story. He said um, he remember going past his brother's bedroom. Yeah, uh, his brother got a guitar in his early teens, and he said he'd walk past his bedroom and he'd see him in there with all the Kiss makeup on, mm -hmm. standing in front of a mirror, miming on the guitar. <laughs> 
And Vinny finally said to him one day, he said, hey, you know, are you ever going to learn that guitar? Because that would be really good if you could actually play it. Yeah. And so his brother set about trying to learn the guitar. And he said about nine months later, he came in his bedroom one day with a guitar around his neck and he asked him if he was ready to jam. And off they went. Brilliant. And he uh, went on to win competitions pretty quickly after well, that. Well, again, this is a, yeah. one of the wonderful stories Vinnie told. Dimebag won the first talent competition he entered. <laughs> he entered the same competition the next time and won that. So then they wouldn't allow him yeah. to enter anymore, in fact, and yeah. he became one of the judges huh. as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old. Yeah, there's, there's a whole kind of, I don't want to say a mythology, but a kind of a... The background of Pantera and the growth of Pantera is so vivid and so vibrant and so full of these crazy characters. It's like watching a cartoon. And yet the music was great and it was often very serious. It wasn't throwaway. And then, the, you know, a horrible full stop was placed on it. Yeah. A horrible one. Yeah. Nick. A horrible one. Yeah. You know, I know kids who were, and it, it was largely a younger audience than me who were into Pantera, but I know kids who were just broken hearted by that, you know, the, way, the pointless, senseless waste of that guy's life. And then, you know, I think I put this on Facebook the other day. I think they might have been the last of their kind, those two, you know, in metal anyway, where you had the big times, you had the millions of albums, you had the gold disc, you had the money before the uh, industry ran out of money. Well, there'll be no more millions of albums sold unless your name is Adele. And the number of Pantera clones I hear now, it's understandable because they were such a giant influence, but I have found it a little bit difficult to get very deeply into many modern metal bands post-2000 mm. because the Pantera influence is ridiculously high mm. and there's already one Pantera. You don't need to clone them. You mm. know what I mean? But that's what happens with influences. It does. And that's that's probably the true mark of their legacy. Mm. You know, it's a sad story. It's a sad story for the Abbots. They went out in a blaze of glory, man. They, they really, really lived it. The candles burned briefly but brightly. Mm. All right. Good. So we, do we not, Mick, uh, assign marks out of five stars for the people we've been discussing? And we've got two people to talk about this time. Usually, for some reason, we've fallen into the habit of Mm. doing this where you ask the question and I answer. I think we should swap it round this time. I'm going to ask you. I can allow that. The producer says it's all right. (laughs) Okay. And, of course, we can split this between Daryl and Vinny. Yeah, right. But uh, star quality. Well, Dimebag was a complete star. Mm. That's five out of five. He lived it, he walked it, he talked it, you know, he was the star. He was Dimebag, right? His initial nickname was Diamond Daryl. You know yeah. I mean? It's hilarious. Yeah. Before he took it down a little bit and made it a bit more grungy. Uh, Vinny, uh, I don't know, slightly less so perhaps. He was, in terms of, of sort of pin-up lookingness, he was behind his brother. But, you know, so, I don't know, I'll give him three or four. But, uh, you know, well, he, what he would it be, three or four? I'm going to give him three. Okay, okay. Sorry, I interrupted you. He drove that back. You may interrupt me, that's fine. Okay. On this occasion. Stop giving me permission. <laughs> I'm not asking for your fucking permission. I am far beyond driven. Influence and legacy. It's f- uh, influence is five in both cases. Dimebag's guitar playing has been endlessly emulated and adored as it should be for its technique and its grooviness, right? And it's catchy as hell. It was perfect. It's just amazing. You can't say enough about it. Him and James Hetfield, frankly, they're up there. And arguably Kerry King of Slayer as well when it comes to metal guitar players of the modern era post-1990. Oh, the same with uh, Vinny's drumming, funnily enough. He uh, pioneered this particular sound, which again, I, I do apologise for all the geeky shit that I interjected to this No, podcast. it's interesting. Well, good. I'm glad to hear you say that, because it is to me. Uh, if you listen to the kick drums in most of the Pantera albums, they're very trebly. There's a kind of click. He achieved that by taping a coin to the kick drum where the beater hit it. Really? So you had a slightly metallic kind of chink when it hit it. So That's as a result, what that is. So as a result, you get these double kick drums, which are like... 
you did hear that to an extent on and justice for all in fact that shouldn't be denied i think in the case of and justice for all though, yeah. that was that i don't know how much of that was deliberate it, it was, it was just probably a production mix kind of consequence right Something shitty like that. production mix. <laughs> as we've fair. said in yeah, past yeah, yeah. uh vinnie made this very much part of his sound and you go and listen to any modern metal band and that's what you'll hear now that sound has been completely cloned it's probably a default setting in pro tools or something yeah, yeah. Or, or a drum machine yeah. program whatever or a mobile phone right yeah. so influence in both cases five legacy uh let me think i mean those albums that they did the latter two uh were, were well received but it's really uh the first three uh cowboys vulgar and far beyond driven that are the sort of the gold standard so yeah i'm gonna get oh fuck it i'll give them five okay yep Tasteful excess. Taste for excess, as far as I know. Can yep. I just interject? Yep. Uh, yeah, you may. We talked a lot about their drinking. <laughs> yeah. And Anselmo's drug problem. Yes. But in the terms of the brothers, yeah. were they into drugs? A or bit of weed smoking. Weed and... I th- a bit of weed smoking. I don't think. I, you know, I don't. I'd have to go back and literally watch all those videos to be sure. But I don't think there was any coke. I think it was just good old boys drinking whiskey and perhaps the odd toot on a little bit of Mary Jane. So taste for excess, but then they did smash places up and fire fireworks. So if that if that is included, then it's a five. But if it's just substances, then no. It's no, like, no, it's like ta- excess, excess. Well, you know they owned a strip club. You know they had sports cars. I mean, all this adds I'll up. Give to a that lot a excess. five. Yeah, right, fine. E- e- excess Maximum. rhymes with Texas, by the oh, way. Nice, nice. That's deep. Yeah, that's deep. And then uh, fine. Sorry, did did you say nine? Uh, no. Oh, okay. Death as a career move. Ah, cynical as it sounds, you know. I mean, uh, well, it's a little bit too early to comment probably on on Vinny, so I won't. But Dimebag's profile has only risen Mm. since his death, partly because he was so young, partly because of the hideous way in which he was killed, partly because he definitely had a lot more potential in him, you know, at the age of only 38. So, yeah, it's probably five for him. You know, there's a Ride for Dime event every year down in, I think it's in Texas. The releases keep coming out. They keep reissuing the stuff. Every guitar toting kid that you read in a, in a guitar magazine who likes metal talks about Dimebag as an influence. It, is it something to do with dying young? I don't know. You know, the Kurt Cobain effect, the Cliff Burton effect, the Randy Rhodes effect. You know, people die young, don't they? People think of them well, more. Well, there, there's certainly uh, something about dying young that obviously cuts you off from that decline that yeah. inevitably comes to us all. Although not me. No, no, and... And, uh, and not you. All right, good. So is that all be done? Anything else to say about uh, Pantera? Wonderful band that they were, sadly cut off. No, they were a fantastic band. I and think so. Dimebag, to me, an immense and unique talent. Mm. And Vinny, a fantastic drummer. Mm. And uh, considering everything he went through, certainly when I spoke to him, incredibly interesting and yeah. warm man didn't seem to let bitterness take over and no I think, he was pretty you know, pretty we, smart we talk about a lot of people who've died and a lot of people who have died young and i always think that if you're one of the bereaved people if you let bitterness take over then the bereavement has won mm. if you maintain your humanity and your happiness and your sort of enjoyment of life then you win and that's my view. well as long as you try anyway as long as you try and that's what we do so how do we get to our next dead rock star while Pantera may well have covered Black Sabbath, our next dead rock star worked with Led Zeppelin. Like Diamond Vinny, our next dead rock star was also one of two siblings who both died too young. And like the Abbott brothers, she's buried next to her brother. While Pantera found themselves dragging the waters, our next dead rock star was down in the flood. And finally, our next dead rock star started off in nursing. The Abbott brothers like nursing too. Nursing large bottles of whiskey. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, We really appreciate it every week. We will see you next week. Please share the heck out of this 
uh, wonderful Heck podcast. Yeah. Heck yeah! Out of this uh, podcast. And that's it from us. We love you. Goodbye! This has been another 7 Digital production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.